0: Our scripture is from Genesis 29, verses 1 through 3, and then 9 through 30. Then, following his dream of the ladder, Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field and three flocks of sheep lying there beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered, the stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and the water, and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. Now when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his mother's brother Laban, and the sheep of his mother's brother Laban, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of his mother's brother Laban. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son Jacob, he ran to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him for a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were lovely, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served for seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go in to her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her maid. When morning came, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, this is not done in our country, giving the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me for another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife. Laban, Laban gave his maid Bilha to his daughter Rachel to be her maid. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. He served Laban for another seven years. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Be to God. Let us pray. Dear God, as we do approach uh, this story and this somewhat intimidating book, remind us that it is your word and it is your word to us and that it is a word of life. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So this past week, I read separate articles about the role of humanities in our culture, which is getting a bit of publicity today, and reading in our lives. In the first column, a Paula Cohen, an English professor at Drexel, says that the purpose of literary study is to be concerned with the search for meaning and value in life. The humanities, she says, teach wisdom, or at least they exercise the faculty that leads us to that elusive end. The unique role of the humanities, she says, is to recognize genius, to revere complexity, and to be deliberative in judging character and action, first through art and then for life. The second article is by a noted Christian writer, Philip Yancey. It is entitled, The Death of Reading is Threatening the Soul. Yancey writes, Books help define who I am. They have ushered me on a journey of faith. They have introduced me to the wonders of natural science and the natural world. They have informed me about issues such as justice and race. More importantly, he says, they've been a source of delight and adventure and beauty, opening windows to a reality I would not otherwise know. But then Yancey says, I'm describing my past, not my present I used to read three books a week, he says. One year I devoted an evening each week to read all of Shakespeare's plays. Okay, due to interruptions, it actually took me two years. Another year I read the major works of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, but I'm reading many fewer books these days, and even fewer of the kinds of books that require hard work. Hence, his title, The Death of Reading, is threatening to the soul. These articles captured my attention because together they describe what I think is the blessing and bane of the Genesis texts on which I've been preaching this summer. The blessing is this. The book of Genesis, indeed, the entire Bible, is as fine a literature as has ever been produced in history. The Bible ranks with Shakespeare and Dostoevsky and Tolstoy as classic literature. But in addition, the Bible is the literature of our faith. It is the literature that has sifted its way through centuries of study, teaching, and worship first by Jews and later by Christians, to be blessed by synagogue and church as sacred literature, as holy scripture. In reality, the literature of scripture is all that the church has, all that a minister has or an individual Christian has in order to know God. It is through scripture that we test our experiences of prayer or worship, nature or human relationships, to discern if it is God, in fact, that we are experiencing through these. I sometimes tell the story of a professor at Ohio Wesleyan who in the early 1970s, facing retirement, Told his classes that if he were only allowed to take two books off his shelf into retirement, they would be Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio, an American classic, and the Bible. The scriptures of the Old and New Testament are both classic and sacred literature. The books that come together to make up the Bible are the greatest gift that the church has received and has the responsibility of passing on century after century. That is the blessing of the Scriptures. The vein is that the Bible is similar to classical literature. It is hard to read. It is hard to study. It takes time. It takes reflection. Our understanding of life can be challenged. We can be offended, hurt, disconsolate over some of what we read. And often we come away without any direct guidance concerning questions that are going on in our lives, whether or not we should enter the military or college, apply to law school or graduate school, marry or remain single, enter a retirement home. Vote Democratic or Republican, Libertarian or Socialist. We can spend considerable time reading and studying and thinking and attending classes and listening to sermons and still not have a direct answer as to what we are to do in a situation that immediately is before us. For the most part, the Bible is not a book that yields daily advice easily or readily. Benjamin Franklin is much better for that. The blessing and vain of Scripture are evidenced throughout the story of Jacob, which occupies 11 chapters right in the middle of the book of Genesis. Two weeks ago, we saw the impact of the conflict between Jacob and Esau, his twin brother. Last week, we saw Jacob become the first human being to pray in the dark. We saw him learn the importance of place. And we saw him learn that he needed to leave his parents' home in order to find the house of God. This week, we see an epic struggle on Jacob's part to marry Rachel, the woman he loves, after being tricked into marrying her older sister, Leah. Through the hope and heartache Jacob experiences, we see Jacob find love receive poetic justice, and catch a glimpse of his role and responsibility in this expanding, extended family. So let's look at each of these three briefly. In the story that Whitney read, we see that Jacob is the first patriarch who loves his wife before marrying her. Despite a world in which arranged marriages are common, in which the producing of children is needed for economic security and to have sufficient labor for the farm or for shepherding. A world in which heirs are needed to make sure that the people of Israel will be sufficiently numerous in order to receive the promise of land, descendants, and blessings that God has given them. Despite all of these historical and social pressures that rendered marriage and child-rearing more important than any love that happened to exist between husband and wife, the narrator, the narrator, dares to tell us three times. Jacob loves Rachel. It's poignant to just stop a minute and watch the way this love bursts upon the scene. Jacob is journeying from his dream of the ladder. He comes, as Casey said, to a well in a field and he sees three flocks of sheep lying down by the well waiting to receive water the narrator explains that shepherds wait until all the sheep have gathered around the well and then they join forces to lift the stone off the mouth of the well and set it aside and draw water and feed the, and water the sheep and then lift the stone back and cover the well because the stone is enormously heavy. While Jacob is talking with these shepherds, he realizes or discovers that they belong to his mother's brother, Laban. Then, suddenly, Rachel comes onto the scene. The narrator says, Rachel, Rachel comes to the well with her father's sheep, for she is the keeper of them. Now, when Jacob sees Rachel, the daughter of his mother's brother Laban, the sheep of his mother's brother Laban, Jacob goes up and all by himself, single-handedly lifts the stone off the well and sets it aside. The narrator tells us this. You've got to pay attention to these details. And then he waters the entire flock of his mother's brother Laban. Then the narrator says, Jacob kisses Rachel and he weeps out loud in front of the mystified and perhaps snickering shepherds. The narrator doesn't say that. I added that. (laughs) You know, when you're writing on parchment, you keep your words limited. And Jacob tells Rachel that he is her father's kinsman, and that he's Rebekah's son. And she runs and tells her father. Now remember, up until this time, Jacob has been described as a quiet man, living in tents, But after his dream of the ladder, upon seeing Rachel at the well, he is overcome with energy and filled with a surge of strength, a surge of strength that is sufficient to remove the entire stone from the well by himself, water an entire flock of sheep, kiss Rachel, and weep. William Blake once wrote, Energy is eternal delight. Can you remember... The first time you fell in love and how much energy you had. Can you remember? Now later, when Rachel's father Laban sees in Jacob's love for his daughter an opportunity to make money, He tricks Jacob into working for Laban seven years before receiving Rachel's hand. And then seven years after receiving her hand. And then six more years before freeing Jacob from his employment. Yet the narrator tells us that those first seven years seem to Jacob but a few days. Because he loves her. Love even constricts months into weeks, weeks into days, and days into minutes. Can you remember the first time you fell in love? How quickly time flew if you were even looking at the clock. in a dark and dreary world in physical conditions under which we would hardly bear up with roles for women and offer and often for men that we would utterly reject Jacob loves Rachel the first human being in the bible to fall in love before marriage. Now up to this point, we developed a certain sympathy for Jacob. But in his story, we also encounter Jacob experience what we would call poetic justice. You will recall that Jacob is a twin to his brother Esau. At birth, Esau emerges from the birth canal first, followed by Jacob clutching his heel. Esau is therefore the oldest. You may remember that in Hebrew society, the law of primogeniture prevails, i.e., the first time, the firstborn primogenesis receives both birthright and blessing. You may also remember that despite being a quiet man and living in tents, Jacob outfoxes his brother and steals Esau's birthright, and then he outfoxes their father Isaac and steals Esau's blessing. And you may recall that this stealing of blessing occurs when Jacob dons hairy animal skins, approaches his father Isaac who is aging and blind and outfoxes Isaac by getting Isaac to touch the animal skins in Isaac's darkness and conclude that it's Esau and therefore bless Jacob thinking he's blessing Esau. Thus, it is through a sense of touch in darkness that Jacob steals Esau's blessing. Now, fast forward to the story that we've read today. Laban senses Jacob's intense love for Rachel. It's all over the place. Rachel is his second-born. It It is law for him to take care of Leah before Rachel. Laban could use Jacob's labor around the farm. Jacob doesn't have money to provide a dowry. So Laban plots to require Jacob to work seven years for Rachel's hand. When the, ne- when the wedding night arrived, Laban slips his oldest daughter Leah into the wedding bed. So by touch, at night, Jacob is fooled just as by touch in darkness, Jacob had fooled Isaac. When Jacob Jacob awakens, as the King James says eloquently, behold, it was Leah. (laughs) Jacob is given Rachel a week later, but only after, after he agrees to seven more years of labor under Laban. The larger point is this. In this story where human love bursts upon the scene, poetic justice is meted out even to the one who loves so poignantly. The deceiver is deceived. The trickster is tricked. The one who uses a sense of touch to fool a father in darkness is fooled through a sense of touch by a father-in-law in darkness. Justice visits Jacob in the most intimate bed he knows. Marriage and family. Even though the norms and laws in Jacob's day differ widely from ours, we can see Jacob's life become complicated even more so as his family grows. Over the course of what will be 20 years living in Laban's household, Jacob fathers 13 children through Rachel and Leah and their respective maidservants Bilhah and Zilpah, each of whom is called a wife. These marriages will see fertility and infertility, jealousy and anger, rivalry between children of different mothers. A favored son, Joseph, will be born to Rachel after nearly all the other children are born. The one daughter and sister named Dinah will die a violent death and both parental weakness on Jacob's part and retaliation on the part of her full brothers Will follow in one of the most violent chapters of the Bible. Rachel will die tragically, giving birth to Benjamin, the youngest of the 13. And the memory of her inconsolable grief will echo through Jeremiah in the exile. And Matthew in the New Testament, following the slaughter of the innocents, Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And finally, into this long and complicated family lineage, Jesus Christ will be born through the line of of Judah one of Leah's children families are large and complex entities they never def- they never fail to bring adequate doses of plenty and want joy and sorrow sickness and health those who create them vow to face when they marry This quiet man who lived in tents grew to see it all once he removed the stone from the well and expressed his newfound and energetic love for Rachel. So my friends, when we hear or read these biblical stories, when we really read them, they do teach us wisdom and they do exercise the faculty of, it leads to that elusive end they open the windows to a reality we might otherwise not know and as hard and sometimes offensive as these stories are they keep our souls alive
0: amen